This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Hello and good morning. In case you don't know me, my name's Liz and I'm part of the staff team here at Seven Vineyard. Today, I'm going to be continuing our series through the book of Mark. And Mark's gospel is very much about answering the questions, who is Jesus and what is his mission? I wonder, what are some of your most awkward moments with other people? Perhaps your name was misheard and you've then spent the rest of the conversation being called by that name. I recently had a parcel delivered to me in the name of Louise rather than Liz. Or maybe you've gone in for a handshake and the other person has come in for a hug and there's been this awkward moment. Or how about this? Have a look at this. This image of the Duchess of Sussex and Kate Robertson, co-founder of One Young World, went viral a few years ago. Kate was in a conundrum. She was unsure whether to curtsy, bow or hug. So she covered her bases by doing all three at the same time. She didn't know how to approach the Duchess and this very awkward exchange ensued. Or how about awkward school moments? I can so clearly remember the embarrassment of putting my hand in the air and calling out mum instead of my teacher's name. Where I was so used to calling out to my mum for help, habit kicked in and I guess I just resulted in calling out for my mum, but with the wrong person and in completely the wrong setting. I felt so embarrassed. I can still remember the red creeping across my face as the other kids laughed and sniggered at my mistake. How we approach people, how we interact with them depends entirely on the context and our relationship to them. A.W. Tozer, a theologian, he said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our thoughts shape how we relate to God, how we approach him, if we even dare to approach him. So, how do you approach God? Let me just bring you up to speed with what's been happening in Mark in case you've missed some of that. Jesus has been really, really busy. He's been gathering disciples and followers. He's been healing and teaching all through the Jewish region of Galilee. They're a bit tired and they could do with a break. So they now head out of Galilee and head towards a Gentile area to get some rest. Now, Gentile simply means not a Jewish person, but for the Jews, this was a loaded term. They considered the Gentiles to be unclean, impure, and they would steer well clear of them. So Jesus and his gang of disciples were headed in a very new direction, literally and spiritually. They were headed into Paganland. The context of this passage is vital to today's story. In the first half of Mark chapter 7, Jesus had a run-in with the Pharisees about their tradition of hand-washing. Jesus makes it clear to them that it's not external things that make them unclean, but it's the filth inside their hearts. The condition of our heart determines our cleanness before God, not our lack of being Jewish, not where we were born, not our ethnicity, not our ill health. This is uncomfortable for the Pharisees and his disciples. It's a shift in long-held tradition and mindset. And it's immediately after this teaching that Jesus takes his disciples to the unclean Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon. And there he meets an unclean Gentile woman. So why would he go there? 
Why would he go to this unclean area? Well, it's precisely because of what he's just been teaching. You are not made unclean by visiting an unclean area or associating with unclean people. It's your heart that makes you unclean before God. So let's read the story now from Mark chapter 7, verse 24 to 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So Mark tells us some significant things about who this woman is and then tells about the conversation between her and Jesus. But he spends very little time on the healing miracle. It seems that Mark feels her identity and her interaction with Jesus is much more important. So Mark tells us she's female. She has a daughter who is possessed by an unclean spirit. She is Gentile, not Jewish. And she is Syrophoenician by birth, a people group who were a long time enemy of the Jews. Mark was highlighting that she was considered unclean, impure, a pagan typical of what you'd expect to find in the heart of pagan land. It would have influenced the way that these Jewish men would have normally interacted with her, especially a Jewish rabbi like Jesus. He would not have normally interacted with her he would have ignored her. And similarly, she should not have been seeking out a Jewish man, let alone a holy Jewish rabbi like Jesus. So firstly, let's take a look at Jesus's approach. It's unusual, puzzling and unexpected for Jesus. Jesus says to her, first, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Here, Jesus is painting a picture of a meal. It's a parable, a metaphor. And the three main elements of it are the children who represent the Jews, the dogs who represent this woman and her people, the Gentiles, and finally the bread, which is the blessing of God or his provision. Now, Jesus does affirm Israel's position before God as his chosen nation. Israel is entitled to the bread first, not the Gentiles. And he's playing the part of a Jewish rabbi perfectly here. And whilst his response to the woman is surprising to us, the disciples would have expected him to respond in this way to her. Now, this is a contentious passage. It's a difficult one. It looks like Jesus is being discriminatory, rude, inhumane towards this poor, vulnerable woman. She's desperately in need, and he seems to be implying that she's a dog. Now, being called a dog is never a good thing, and it was certainly highly offensive in Jesus's time. This is not the Jesus we are used to seeing. Where is the meek and mild Jesus, the gentle one? 
Where is the man whom children love to be with? The man who lovingly welcomes sinners and ate with tax collectors? Is he grumpy and trying to get rid of her? Is he revealing a dislike of the Gentiles? No. His initial statement is blunt and it's inflammatory. Today, he would likely be cancelled for saying this kind of thing. And we are seeing a different side of Jesus. He's wildly unpredictable. But he is not being racist or flippant or inhumane. Mark placed this story directly after Jesus's teaching. He has just changed the definition of clean and unclean, and he's modeling how to live this out going forward, primarily to his baffled disciples. He was reframing who he was and what his mission was to those who were with him. And he's also doing something unexpected with her. He's drawing her into conversation and drawing out her faith. His approach was unusual and potentially insulting, but it met her where she is at. Jesus is a bit of a wild card. Secondly, the woman's approach. She understood who she was. What happens next is surprising and amazing. She understands Jesus's parable and she runs with it. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She is willing to put herself into Jesus's picture and let the scene play out. She isn't offended by the picture Jesus paints. She knows she is considered unclean and unworthy before a holy God and is willing to play any role to receive from him, even the role of a dog underneath a table. She had no righteousness to place before him. She did not trust in her own abilities or effort to gain his mercy. She dared to approach him because she understood who she was before him. Now, there's a wonderful prayer in the Anglican Common Book of Prayer, and it's based on this very story. And it goes like this. We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord, whose nature is always to have mercy. This Syrophoenician lady had the boldness of faith the audacity and determination to ask Jesus anyway. She asked and made herself vulnerable to him, but still he owed her nothing. Colossians 1.21 says, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. The Jewish prophet Isaiah understood who he was in light of who God was, famously saying, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Jew or Gentile, it is true for all of us. None of us are worthy. None of us deserve the grace or mercy of God. God owes us nothing. She knew she didn't deserve help, but still she asked. And it's hard asking for help, making ourselves vulnerable. We fear rejection. We fear getting a no. And so instead we look to ourselves. We work really hard and become proud of our ability to get things done. 
Or we get things twisted and try to earn his help, try to earn his mercy, feeling like we deserve something from him. So recently I've been working on some fundraising applications for the debt center, um, for the CAP debt center. And I was determined to cover it in prayer and ask God for his help. So I was praying quite a lot about it. And then when the news came in that the application had been refused, I was surprised and pretty frustrated. I was processing my disappointment um, with God on, on a walk home. And I said to him, like, this is such a good thing. It does such good work. Rebecca does such a good job. We need this money. Why wouldn't you want to give the money to the debt center? Why was it a no? It's not about me at all. It's about the brilliant work we can do. And I caught a little check in my heart from the Holy Spirit. He showed me that in fact, it was all about me. I had made the success of the application all about me. I thought that if I were praying enough, then I could earn God's favour and help and we'd get the money um, and it would all be brilliant. I was trusting in my own hard work, my own efforts in prayer to earn the mercy of God. I was blind to it. I didn't realise that that was my heart attitude, but Jesus kindly revealed it to me. Unlike the woman in the story, I thought I could impress God with my efforts and he in turn would bless me. What about you? Are you trusting in your efforts, in your strength, in your abilities? Do you pray to him and so say, leave it with him and then go off and try to make it happen for yourself? How might things be different in your life if you were to trust in him rather than yourself? Now, I think awareness is the first step towards transformation in this area. And I definitely want to see change in my life in this particular area. I want to trust in his strength and his ability, not my own. And I also want to be aware of poor attitudes in my heart. And so I've been choosing to introduce regular times of silence and solitude. And that just gives Jesus time to speak to me. And it allows his spirit to highlight stuff that's going on. It's a habit I want to develop because I want Jesus's voice to be the loudest voice in my head. In light of his love, I am worthy. In light of who he is and his mission, I am a child of God. I am who he says I am. So I'm choosing to make space in my day and week to hear Jesus affirm those kind of truths over my life. What practice or rhythm could you pick up to regularly hear Jesus affirm you in the same way? And next up, the woman's approach. She understood who Jesus was, which is why she dared to approach him and was so determined to get help from him. She used this word first to get her foot in the door. It's a brilliant way in. She cleverly reasoned that whilst the children get fed first, the dogs in any family always eat up the scraps and the leftovers. She was willing to eat second and was happy to have the crumbs off his table. She wasn't too proud, but was willing to take whatever Jesus might mercifully give her. She called Jesus Lord, positioning herself as his servant. And Matthew's gospel recording the same story says that she called him son of God, son of David. She believed that he was the Jewish Messiah, 
the prophesied deliverer and saviour of Israel. And she trusted and expected him to act in line with who he was, king, lord and saviour. She also expected that his kingdom has an abundance that overspills the table, an abundance which produces leftovers, both for Jews and also for the Gentiles. She had a vision in her heart of how the kingdom of God works, a vision which became reality when Jesus feeds 4,000 Gentiles just two stories later, but with one difference. They did not eat basket of leftovers. Those Gentiles ate directly from the hand of Jesus. Once more, Jesus was modelling to the people and to his disciples that he was the Messiah, both for the Jews and for the Gentiles. In less than five minutes with Jesus, she demonstrated a deep understanding of who Jesus was and approached him um, with remarkable faith. We have not really seen this of anyone in the book of Mark so far. Jesus's own mother and brothers, his hometown, the Pharisees, his disciples, none of them have understood who he was and what his mission was. His disciples have even been rebuked for their lack of faith and their lack of understanding. Yet this Gentile, unclean woman saw him and she got it. Her leading thought about Jesus was that he would be merciful to her, in spite of those barriers mentioned. She trusted in his mercy, in his goodness, in his generosity, in his deliverance of the people. Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, writes, she's saying, Give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. She saw and understood the gospel of God's amazing grace. She understood that she had no merit or standing before him. So she begs for mercy based on his merit, based on his standing. She understood that God's nature is always to have mercy on us, which gave her confidence and faith. She approached Jesus because she knew who he was. But what happens when we misunderstand him, when we don't really understand who he is? How does that impact us and how we approach him? My primary view of God through most of my life has been to see him as an angry judge. And I don't really know why that image stuck, but it did. When I was 15 or 16, I was at secondary school and I was assaulted by a boy outside of school. And in my statement to the police, I neglected to tell them that I had sworn at the boy, basically because I didn't want to get into trouble with my own parents for that. But as a court date grew and got closer, I became increasingly anxious about it. I genuinely thought that if I swore on the Bible and didn't tell the whole truth in court, that God would strike me down in the witness box. And I know that sounds ridiculous, um, but that is who I thought God was, an angry judge. When you view someone in that way, it significantly impacts how you approach them and if you trust them. My view of God was that he was an angry person, an angry judge looking to find my faults and would punish me for them. I made an incorrect meaning of who he was. And that meant I kept my distance from him. I didn't trust him. I didn't want to pray to him. I mostly just wanted to appease him. 
and tried to be really, really good so I didn't get on the wrong side of him. And I think this is what Tozer is getting at in his quote from earlier. Our thoughts about who he is are vital as it impacts how we approach him and relate to him. Now, thankfully, this all changed for me when I came across a talk called The Father's Heart by Katia Adams. Um, and that now makes up part of the gold course that we run. I became aware of how I was seeing God. And I realized that I saw him as a judge waiting to condemn me, but I realized that that was a lie. It helped me understand that what I thought was a lie. It wasn't true. That's not who God was at all. But it was no wonder that I didn't enjoy praying to him, that I didn't like spending time with him. I thought he was always about to pronounce me guilty. And of course you would be on edge in that situation. Anyone would. But it was a lie. And it was a lie that kept me from intimacy with my father. Now, I choose to see him first as my father, my Abba. For me, when I think of the other titles of God, like judge or king or creator or Lord, I can't relate to those so well. And so formality and distance kick in. I don't come as close, but I keep my distance. When I think of God as my father, when I pray to him as Abba, when I talk about him as my dad, that creates intimacy with him and it deepens my trust. I'm able to go deeper in my relationship with him. Jesus came to reveal a father to us. It was a new dynamic for our relationship with a holy God and it changes how we can approach him. When we approach him in light of knowing who he is, it changes our relationship with him and our level of trust in him. So what about you? How do you primarily view God? What do you call him when you pray to him? Do you view him like I did as an angry judge wanting to find you guilty? Maybe you see him primarily as a sin counter waiting to tell you off. Or do you see him as a king sat on his throne, looking down in disgust at his subjects who are bothering him with their constant mundane requests? What ways does your view of God impact how you approach him and your relationship with him? Take some time over the next few days to ask the Holy Spirit about this, what he sees, and get him to reveal the lies you've been believing about who God is. One rhythm you could pick up is to join us at the end of the month as we run another course of the gold. It covers exactly this kind of stuff. And I've already shared how it's kind of transformed my relationship with God. But have a look on our website because there are other stories from other people who've experienced similar change. And they've encountered Jesus afresh through this course. Sign up through the website or just get in touch with me or my husband, Greg. We'd love to have you join us. And so finally, Back to the question that I asked at the start. How do you approach God? And why does this even matter? It matters because approach is all to do with relationship. We were saved for relationship with our Heavenly Father. We were created for relationship with Him. And even though sin interfered with that, 
God created a plan to restore us back to relationship and Jesus's mission was to return lost children to their father. The Syrophoenician woman knew who she was before Jesus and she understood who he was and what his mission was. Her faithful response was that she dared to approach him with her need in spite of everything which could have held her back. Jesus commends her great faith and heals her daughter from a distance. She saw the redemption of God in her life and her daughter's life. We approach him with humility, knowing we were once enemies of God and unworthy, but we are no longer who we were. The old has gone, the new is here. Now we approach him with boldness, with determination, with great faith, knowing we are beloved children. We approach him trusting in his righteousness rather than our own. Mark seeks to answer the question, who is Jesus? Well, he doesn't always act in the way we expect him to or say the things we expect. And there's a great scene in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe where Lucy and Mr. Tumnus are talking. And Mr. Tumnus says, after all, he's not a tame lion. And Lucy replies with, no, but he is good. Jesus is not always meek and gentle and mild. He is not tame. He is complex, multifaceted, deep, unpredictable. He is not always as we expect him to be, but he is good. He is one we can dare to approach in our uncleanness, in our mess, in our desperation. We can dare to approach him because he is good and his nature is always to have mercy. What would our church community be like if we increasingly grasped and better understood who Jesus is? More of his personality and his character and temperament. And what would our lives look like if we were increasingly living as children of God? Well, we would live joy-filled, abundant lives. We would experience a greater depth of intimacy with the Father. We would become more like Jesus and do more of what he did. We would have faith to move mountains. People around us would be caught up in our abundance and would want to experience it too. Greater faith in our community would see more people partnering with God to feed the homeless, to come alongside the brokenhearted, to mend broken relationships, to see sickness and disease healed, to see the addicted and the prisoner set free. We would see the redemption of God in our lives and in the lives of those around us, just like the Syria Phoenician woman did. How does that sound? What do you want your life to look like? What do you want the life of your family and friends to be like? I want it to be like that. Do you? The good news is that there are practices and rhythms that we can adopt to start us on this process of better understanding the nature of God, who he is and who we are. I've already mentioned about um, signing up for the goal. Please do join us. We're running a course later this month, um, but you could ask your community group leader for it to be running your group, or you could get involved in it through a one-to-one -one mentoring relationship. Making space to listen to his spirit is invaluable and incredibly fruitful. 
I mentioned my rhythm of silence and solitude to let Jesus speak to me. But there are other ways and means of doing this, which might better suit you, your life, your season that you're in, your job, or just generally the way that you hear from him. As a community at Seven, we are absolutely committed to helping each other discover rhythms that work. Rhythms which enable you to grow and change and flourish. There's a whole range of things that you could do. So check out the website or speak to a member of staff who can point you to some things to try out. And then finally, I just want to say, discover and encounter the real Jesus for yourself. He is complex and multifaceted. He is wild and fun. Get to know a different side to him. So two book recommendations for you. Firstly, God Has a Name by John Mark Comer. And secondly, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Both are books based on the character of who God is. So read them slowly and meditatively. Talk about it with your spouse or a friend or somebody from church. Consider who he is and encounter Jesus afresh. And finally, just one more recommendation. The Emmanuel Prayer Approach is a prayer process enabling you to connect deeply and personally with Jesus, both during the session and then increasingly as a lifestyle. They are so helpful. I've really enjoyed them and just found my relationship with Jesus has gone deeper as a result. So I would highly recommend them. They're brilliant. So just get in touch with Claire or have a look at the website for that. So let's just finish now by praying part of that beautiful prayer that I prayed earlier. Father, we do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord who always delights in showing mercy. Jesus, we thank you that you are good, that you are always good and that your nature is to always have mercy on us. Amen.